All right. As you give, open up your Bibles to uh, 1 John chapter 2. I'm going to be honest with you. I thought we'd take longer through chapter 1, but we didn't. We just went through it pretty quick. So we're in chapter 2 already. Um, can you, maybe, maybe, um, maybe you can, maybe you, you don't remember. Oh, kids, you can go back to kids' church too. Sorry. Um, you know, can you remember those times in your life? Maybe it was one kind of solidifying moment in your life. Maybe it was uh, just a series of things that happened in your life where you went from no longer being a kid, but not quite an adult yet. You, you went from that place where you knew too much to, to really be naive, um, but you weren't quite an adult yet. Somewhere maybe in your middle school, teen years, you just, you learned something about the world or something about people and you realize, man, the world life is nothing like I really thought it was. I remember being like five and six years old and dad would go to the local grocery store on a Friday night and we'd, uh, and we'd cash his check. And I always thought that was the coolest thing, man. He had this slip of paper and uh, he gave it to the, the cashier and they gave him a big wad of money. And I just thought, wow, my dad is loaded. He's got so much money. We're gonna, we're gonna go to McDonald's. I know, I can feel it. Because um, when I was five, that was... Going to McDonald's was basically like going to the moon. It was, it, it was as rare and it was uh, as glorious as going to the moon. And so, you know, dad, can we, go, can we go to McDonald's, dad? Dad, can I get this toy? Can I get this? Can I get that? No, son, I can't afford it. Wait, what? Huh? I just saw the money you just put in your pocket, dad. You're lying to me. And I didn't understand. He would try to explain himself, you know, rent and bills and things, but that didn't make any sense to me. Until I got my own job. I mean, before that, I started to kind of understand. But then I got my own job. And I remember that first week of working. And I was, I was, work, I was trying to learn. I was working in a retirement home in the kitchen. I was washing dishes. And it was just, it was, it was at that point, probably the hardest work I had done. Uh, not that it was the hardest, but the most continuous. Like you don't, you know, you don't work for half an hour and then stop. Like you got to keep going. And, and plus on the, on the other hand, you're meeting these folks that are elderly and they, they love to talk to you and they want to get to know you. So it was a very uh, taxing first week, but I got that first paycheck and I was so happy. And, uh, and that's when I learned the cruel reality of something called income tax. Anybody familiar with income tax? That's like, What? Like, I don't even get a choice. It's already taken out. I had had plans to buy myself a Sega Game Gear. Anybody have one of those? One of, the, one of the coolest things about my wife was when I first met her, she had one of those. I was so impressed. But I wanted one so bad, and I calculated it down to the penny that I could get it. And then, boom, no more money left over because Uncle Sam took some out. It was one of those awakening moments in my life where I went from that childhood naivety to this is the reality of the world. Um, you know, can you remember the first time you ever got pulled over? How scary that was? To this day, like I, I, I'm not a fast driver. I try to, you know, despite what my wife says, I try to drive relatively well. But I, if a cop gets behind me, I feel like I'm a, I got a warrant out for my arrest and I've got to be careful because they're going to throw me in jail for some reason. I've done nothing wrong. But I remember that first time, it was so scary. You see those lights go off and you're like, oh man. And, you're, and maybe you were speeding. In my case, I was going too slow. And so I was tired coming home from work and I was just like in my little car. And he's like, yeah, you gotta go a little faster. And I was just like, oh man, they're gonna throw me in jail. And I've seen movies about jail. And I'm not going to jail, man. This is scary. 
And he's just like, go home. And because I was like a block away from him, just go home and drive faster. Okay, fine. But it's those moments like that. And maybe it's not something, you know, quite as simple as that. Maybe it was a health diagnosis or maybe it was getting uh, laid off from a job. And you're just like, man, you know, I'm not like, it's not like I thought it was. Life is really, really, really different than I anticipated it to be. All that kind of backstory to help you better understand what John is about to say to the church. In John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Let's pray. Lord, your word is good. And our attempt and my attempt this morning is not to edit it, not to add to it, not to take from it, but to simply let it be what it is, to allow the Holy Spirit to take these words that are timeless and use them in a timely manner for your people here today. May you receive all of the glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. John starts off by addressing the congregation, addressing the people, and ultimately addressing us as little children. And I don't know about you, but there are few people who can get away with calling me a little child or little children. My mom, uh, and basically anybody older than my mom. And she's pretty young. Um, But for the most part, when I'm with a contemporary, somebody who's kind of my same age, I don't expect them to call me a little child. For us, you might think of that as a derogatory term. Like, what do you mean a little child? I'm an adult. I pay taxes. I have a job and I mow my lawn when there's grass and I'm a, I'm a man or I'm a woman. You know, I've I got kids and I take care of my house and I work and, you know, I can crochet or something. I don't know what women do. I, I'm, a, I'm an adult. Why are you calling me a little child or why are you referring to us as little children? There's a twofold reason. Number one, this is a term of endearment. John doesn't just, doesn't just say, hey, little children. He says, my little children. There's this ownership that John has over the congregation. Not that he's in control of them, but he's saying, look, it's not about me and you or, or, or us versus them. Look, we're in this together. You're my little children. I, it's my responsibility to make sure you know what is true. I don't just sit back and expect you to find it. You are partially my responsibility, a gift from the Lord to shepherd you into the green grass and the still waters of truth that is Jesus Christ. He's not making a judgment against anybody for being youthful. He's not speaking in a derogatory way. It's a term of endearment. It's, it's, a, it's an ownership in your life of, of where you end up. As a pastor and any kind of minister, when we see folks engage in anything that is contrary to the will of God or the word of God, it doesn't just affect us because you've broken the rules. That, that's secondary. What, what affects us is we realize you're hurting yourself. And as we invest ourselves in your life, we want to see you make the best choices and follow Christ and succeed in following him. To, to say things like, I read my Bible and it made sense. I had this, this temptation to sin, but I was able to overcome it through the Holy Spirit. We don't just simply want to tell you all these things to do and not do and just hope you work out and it works out for you. We're invested in your life. And there's times where that can get strained, but it's no less painful and no less joyous when you're either defeated or you're victorious. Every person, even if you're not a pastor, maybe you're just a, 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 a your regular 
Christian called to be a minister of the Lord, to share the gospel with the world, and you get a friend who starts to see the light and then they turn away, it's devastating. It's this relationship that we walk into where we want to see others succeed in Christ. I mean, we want to see you succeed in business and marriage and all those things too, but quite honestly, I'd rather see you succeed in your walk with Christ than anything else in your life. It's the only thing that will last. It's the only thing that will outlast you in your life. And so it's the one thing we're going to focus on. And, And I believe that if we focus on that thing primarily, these other things get kind of taken care of. Your marriages get better as you walk closer to Christ. Your finances get better as you walk closer to Christ. You become a better steward of what God gives you. You know, your, your health may not get better, but your perspective about your health gets better. You're no longer devastated. You realize, okay, this is a trial I'm gonna go through and this is for my good somehow. And I don't know how, but man, God's gonna do something glorious in this. And in the low times, I'm gonna seek him. And in the good times, I'm gonna seek him. And And I want you to know that it's not just me and the pastors here at the church that feel this way about you. It's Jesus that feels this way about you. He is incredibly invested in your life. He's invested to the point where he's given his life on a cross for your sins and on your behalf. He does not want you to walk away from the gift of salvation and the gift of grace that he's extended to you. There is this ability for some folks to hear the gospel, harden their hearts and walk away. And if you're on this side of the fence, it just, it confounds you. Like, why would you, why would you not seek to have your sins forgiven? Some, it's arrogance. Some, it's pride. Some, it's hurt. And, and, and thinking, I, I could never be forgiven. But the truth is, if you couldn't be forgiven, Jesus never would have died on the cross. It would have been fruitless for him to do so. That's the first reason why John is calling us little children. Here's the second reason. Here's the most important reason. This is a wake-up moment for the church. They've allowed, um, for whatever reason, they've allowed false teaching to come into their church. They've allowed the teaching of Gnosticism to come in, the teaching that Jesus was spirit only. He didn't come to the earth in, in the flesh, as the Bible says, that because flesh is inherently evil, Um, It will be destroyed in the last days. So until then, live it up with your flesh because it doesn't matter anyways. Um, And that all of this could be attained through secret knowledge that only a select few had. And so if you were fortunate enough to have this secret knowledge, then you would know these things. You'd know these deep things about God. And if you were on the outside kind of looking in, well, you could only hope that one day you would move up uh, on the rung of the ladders of secret knowledge that you could attain and be as spiritual as those people you were looking up to. And this secret, this, this secret, this, this false teaching didn't come in one day wearing a coat that said, I'm a false teaching or a false doctrine and, and I want to deceive you. It came in subtly. It came in, uh, in, in small increments to the point where now John's got to address it because it's gone on too long and it's gone too far. And so when John addresses the church, it's this wake-up call. Look, little children, you've been infiltrated. Your naivety is getting in the way of your maturity in Christ. And there are a lot of folks today that need to hear this wake-up call. They need to hear that they are little children loved by God. But their naivety, as much as we are to have a childlike faith, and as much as we are to come to him in a way that kind of abandons all things, this is not a call to just be naive. Now, naive is a word that's 
generally misunderstood. Naive means willfully ignorant. It doesn't just mean that you're young and you're cute and we think of kids being naive and they don't know about stuff. It means you've decided to remain naive. You know, if I just don't learn about that or if I don't look at that, then I, then I don't have to address it. We would call this, um, this type of naivety is very familiar. It sounds like to me like when guys have to go to the doctor. How many guys hate going to the doctor? My doctor always tells me it's because you're fat. Like, really? My ankle's broken. Well, it's because you're fat. Really? I have shingles. Well, it's because you're fat. I mean, it's just everything comes back to weight. So I don't really like going to the doctor. I have a good doctor now. I shouldn't say that. I enjoy seeing her. But previous doctors. Most guys don't like to go to the doctor. What they do is they simply ignore whatever's bothering them, right? Oh, you know, I've got this, this, this problem. My, my back hurts. Well, why don't you go to the doctor? Nah, I'll be fine. I'll just ignore it. And be willfully naive to what you're doing to your body. And, and women, don't smirk. You do the same thing. Okay, but I'm just gonna let you off the hook this morning. Willfully naive, willfully ignorant to the truth. Now, can you see how the message of, hey, do whatever you want in your flesh, it doesn't matter anyways. Can you see how there's some appeal to that? Can you see how, how that was easily taught amongst fleshy people, naive, willingly ignorant people? To say, look, the flesh is inherently bad, which is what the Bible says. So, you know what? If you want to be in an adulterous relationship, go ahead because your flesh will be held accountable, not you, not your spirit. That's what lives forever. That will be fine. It's your flesh that's going to be, it's going to have to take the brunt of that. Oh, okay. Oh, you like stealing? Oh, you want to you wanna skim a little off the top at work and kind of get, unpro- you know, uh, gain for yourself that's just wrong, sinful gain? Do you want to do that? Sure, go ahead. Do you want to, do you want to go to some other temple and worship some other God through prostitution and burn offerings and things like that? You want to do that? Fine. Because your, your, your flesh will be, your, that's, going to be that's going to pay for that. Your, your spirit will be okay. And we say it like that, most of us would say, oh, that's, that, that sounds like false teaching. But when it's subtle and it comes in increments, it deceives us intentionally. And that's what happened to this church. And so John's got to address them. Look, you're my little children. But as children, you're being willfully ignorant to this teaching. And that's why in the very next line, he says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Last week, we spent a lot of time on sin. I don't want to beat a dead horse. But the idea of us being sinners is one that I I feel and I I practice uh, teaching on a weekly basis or, or preaching on a weekly basis because we are very good at deceiving ourselves. Well, this isn't that bad. This isn't, this isn't that big of a sin. It's not as bad as what they're doing. At least I'm not murdering someone. How many times have you guys ever said that? This is a little white lie. No, I want us to see sin as the Bible describes sin, as being war, enmity between us and God, division, separating. It's a, it's a trap. There are shackles around our wrists and feet. It binds us from being and from living the fullest potential that God has for us. And so, you know, the apostle Paul writes to the Romans that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That whether it's Jew or Greek, no one has this sort of inside track and is sinless. Everybody's done something that has separated separated them from God. Whether it's your grandma, whether it's Billy Graham, whether it's your pastor, whether it's you, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And that includes the sin of false doctrine. That includes the sin of false teaching. See, 
there are times where we will disagree on things. And we call these things uh, that are safe to disagree on, we call them open-handed issues. One of the most primary examples, one of the most uh, obvious examples is when it comes to music on a Sunday morning. If, if I was to interview all of you this morning and ask what would you prefer on Sunday morning to be heard, I would get, however many people are here, I'd get that many opinions. They would all be different. Some would kind of mix and match, but for the most part, everybody's got their own idea as to what song should be sung, at what tempo this should be sung, uh, whether it should be accompanied by this or that. Everybody's got an opinion. And those usually come to a head when it comes to two different groups, contemporary Christian music, CCM, and hymns. And you often have a hymn camp and you have a, a, a contemporary Christian music camp and both of them think the other is wrong and both of them think that their group is right and both of them think that their way is correct. Both of them are wrong. Songs sung on a Sunday morning are meant to glorify Jesus, to bring him praise, to worship him. It's really less about us and it's more about him. There are some songs that I will sing on a Sunday morning that I would not sing otherwise but they bring praise and glory to Jesus and it's not about me. So I'll sing those songs with joy, even though they're not my favorite. Do I listen to them uh, while I'm cleaning my kitchen or while I'm driving down the road? No, because they're not for entertainment value. They're for worshiping the Lord. So if I'm gonna be doing that, then that's what that music's gonna be playing for. So whether it's a hymn that's 250 years old and was originally written in German, or if it's some song that just came out two weeks ago and has a techno beat to it, it really doesn't, all that matters is whether or not it glorifies Jesus. I've heard hymns that are generations old that are so focused on the person, I don't know how Jesus gets praised, and I hear the same thing in modern music as well. And so they're both in error. It doesn't matter if it was written a long time ago or if it was written today, the error is still the same. And so, these are, this is what we call an open-handed issue. We can disagree on this. You might be all hymns, and that's okay. If, those are the music, if that's the music that speaks to you and gets you to that place of worship the fastest, well, then praise God. If, you are, uh, if you're like, you know what, I really like contemporary Christian music, I'm really into that, that hill song, and, and, and that type, of, that's, that just speaks to me, then praise God. Use that music to worship and glorify Jesus. Neither one of you are right or wrong in your preference. You become wrong when you make it a battle. But for the sake of argument, it's an open-handed issue. But now we look at something like uh, Jesus being the son of God. This is what we call a close-handed issue. We don't argue this point. There is, no, there is no room for deviation from this truth. The Bible teaches it, preaches it, instructs it, confirms it, that Jesus is the son of God. Not, not one of many sons, meaning uh, God the father had more than one son. Um, some religions teach that Satan and Jesus were both sons of God and, and God chose Jesus' plan for salvation rather than Satan's plan for annihilation. We don't believe that. We don't believe that there's room for deviation in this truth. The virgin birth, heaven and hell, God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the, Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, us being sinners. These are close-handed arguments. But pastor, I don't have all the answers for those things. Yeah, neither do I. That's not the point. It's not about having all the answers. It's, these are foundational truths that we must, uh, that we, the Bible teaches us and that we have to line up with as we become Christians. Is there room for questions? There's always room for questions. There's always rooms, room for asking 
and, 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 and acknowledging the fact that maybe I don't understand everything. That's okay. But these closed-ended issues, we can't, we can't be on the same team and have different opinions. Well, I don't believe Jesus is the son of God. Then you have a crack in your foundation of being a Christian. Well, I don't, I, you know, I don't believe there's a hell. Then you have a crack in the foundation of your uh, theology. And so these false teachings are sinful because they come against the word of God. And so they can't be, you know, kind of glossed over. You know, I, 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 when I have personal conversations with you folks, if you bring up something that I believe is contrary to the word of God, I will tell you. I won't make you an example before the church and I won't, you know, put you on blast on Facebook or anything like that, but we'll address that. I'll talk about it. Where did you learn that? Where does the Bible say that? You know, what, you know, some folks really believe Jesus wants you to be successful in certain things. Well, where does the Bible tell you God wants you to be successful in those things? Show me, and, and I will believe you. I'm not here to just disprove you. I, I want to know. And, and, and if it comes down to, well, that's what I was taught, or you know, that's what's just always said, then we got to go back and we got to correct that. We got to take our faulty foundation and build it back up and, and maybe even replace it if we need to. So false doctrine, we really can't have any room for it within the church. We have to be, now we can, there are gonna be things that we disagree on. If they are open-handed issue, that, that's okay. How, how you should dress for church. You know, Easter's coming up and I love my wife. She wants me to wear a pastel shirt every year. I never have. Not a very good husband, I guess, when it comes to that. We can disagree on that. Maybe you're gonna come in, come in on, on that Sunday, just, oh man, suit, pressed creases and you're just going to look great or maybe you're going to come in wearing a pair of jeans and some flip-flops because maybe there'll be sun out that day and maybe a shirt and or a t-shirt and that's it and you know what that's okay both of the, that's open-handed issue and we can both coexist and worship jesus no matter what we're wearing that day but when it comes to close-handed issues we have to be unified in that for the things that we don't agree on let's focus on the things we do agree on let's focus on the things that the bible teaches us first before we start trying to convert each other to hymns or contemporary music or how we dress or how loud something should be and and, and what translation of the bible should be preached out of and and that sort of stuff first corinthians uh, chapter 10 verse 12 says therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. When we speak of sin, I want you to know that when you are tempted to sin, God always provides a way out for you. This scripture is usually twisted to say, God will never give you more than you can handle. That's a false teaching. God will definitely give you more than you can handle. Do you know why? Because you need him. And the best way, the, the quickest way we run to him is when we're given things that we cannot handle ourselves. But what this truth is telling us, this promise that is given to us is that if you are entering into a place where there is temptation, there's always a back door to get out somehow, some way. The, the, the old cliche of the devil made me do it does not fly. To say I, it was the only option I had would make God a liar. There's no temptation that we have fallen into that is not uncommon to every person that's ever gone through it. And it may be hard to find that, that escape because sin messes with your head, right? It's like every, you know, wrong seems right all of a sudden. You can justify everything, but God says that there will be a way to get you out so that you can endure that temptation. This is a great promise for those who are trying to walk and follow Jesus Christ 
And there are going to be times where we fail at this miserably. I'm here to tell you today, that's not the end of your story. If you fail at sin today, here's the big good news of today's message. Verses one through two of 1 John chapter two says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. See, the Bible generally, when it, when it calls us a sinner, always reminds us that there's a savior. That whenever we're reminded that we need a savior, that we're told, we are told that we indeed have a savior who saves us from that sin. Jesus Christ, the righteous. And here G John calls him our advocate. It's the only place in the Bible where John or anybody calls Jesus our advocate. And what does that mean? It means that Jesus stands before God making intercession for you. When you mess up, when you sin, when you stumble, when you fall, whatever, whatever word you want to use for that transgression, you have Jesus before God the Father pleading your case. And not pleading your case like a defense attorney trying to find loopholes and, and trying to make something from nothing and make it all everybody else's fault but yours, but letting the Father know that you are in him that you belong to him. See church, it's, no matter what the sin is, Jesus is willing, he is faithful, he is good to always forgive you. And some people won't preach it like that because what they're afraid the people will hear is, I can do whatever I want and God will forgive me. That's, that's the Gnosticism speaking. That's not what we're preaching at all. What we're preaching is that if Jesus gets a hold of your life, sin, will be horrible to you. You will no longer look at sin as something joyful or life-giving. You'll see it as it truly is. You'll see sin as death in your life. You, you ever just, you ever eat something so bad it leaves a bad taste in your mouth? Or maybe, maybe you drink some coffee and it's too hot and it burns your tongue. Isn't that the worst? The rest of your day, your tongue's all funny and you just nothing tastes right. It's just like, oh gosh, I can't wait for this to go. And there's nothing you can do. You just have to ride it out. When you meet Jesus, when he transforms your life, when you begin that process of sanctification, sin now tastes like that. It's no longer, hey, this feels good. It's like, oh gosh, why am I doing this? I'm betraying my savior. I am betraying everything Jesus did for me. But the good news is that even when we walk in that, even when we fall in that, even when temptation overcomes us, we miss the back door, we, we don't find the way out that God provides for us, we have an advocate. We have someone who stands there on our behalf, not explaining why we had to do it, but saying, no, he's forgiven for what I have done. And his sin is not greater than my sacrifice. Romans 8 and 34 says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews in chapter 7 verse 25 says, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Everything I read in the word tells me that Jesus never tires of making intercession for us. If he did, 
he would not be the God that we think that he is. If Jesus tired of us and our shenanigans, then he wouldn't be the son of God. But here's the truth. He never tires of loving you. He never tires of forgiving you. Are there things you should get by now and shouldn't be doing anymore? Probably. But time and time again, you meet a loving God who welcomes you in. The greatest example, one of my favorite parables that Jesus uses is the parable of the prodigal son. This prodigal, he, he requests his inheritance early from his dad and wants to leave to live, it, to live up in lasciviousness, basically to blow it on all the worst sins that you possibly can. He wants to go, he wants to gamble it away, he wants to visit prostitutes. I mean, that's what the word says, of, that's what his brother accuses of, of later. And if you've ever done something like that, you realize that the money runs out really fast when you're the one with the pockets and your friends all want to hang out and they all want to ride your coattails and then the money goes away and the good times fade away and all your friends go away and it's no longer what it once was. Well, that's what happens to the prodigal. And the prodigal, prodigal meaning wasteful, uh, giving away, just throwing away his life. He decides, you know what? I'm going to go back home um, because when... When my dad hires somebody, he's a good, just man. He'll hire them. He'll give them uh, three meals. He'll give them a place to live. And his employees are taken care of pretty well. And that's what I'm going to go back as. I'm going to go get a job with my dad. Um, before he can get back, it says, the father sees him in a, at the, from a distance. It says that the dad goes running after him doesn't wait for his son to show up. He's not waiting there with arms crossed, tapping his foot. You know, like, oh, I knew this day would come. I told you so. Shouldn't I ever gave you your money. I guess that's my fault. No. It says his dad got up and ran towards his son and wrapped his arms around him, saying things like, my son who was once lost is now found. He's back. The father didn't ask where the money went. He didn't ask him if he was sorry, if he'd learned his lesson. Because I think somehow the, the dad knew that. The dad knew the money was gone. The dad knew the kid had bottomed out. The dad knew the kid had learned a really hard life lesson. That naivety was gone. He understood life. And you can't just take a bunch of money and blow it and live happily ever after. That some, at some point that runs out. But the father runs after him, wraps his arms around him, loves him gives him his ring, the symbol of authority, gives him a robe, has a barbecue, they kill the fattened calf, which is like going and buying a really expensive piece of meat and grilling it all day and having a celebration. And this is the type of love that welcomes those who are sinners. If you keep reading the story, you read about another wasteful brother. He's the one who stayed behind and he's the one who kept doing all the stuff out of duty, but his love towards his father had grown cold. And he didn't see himself as a sinner. He didn't see himself as being far from his dad. He became jealous of his brother. I've been doing all this work. I've never, I've never faltered. I've never given up. I've never gone off and wasted money, asked for my inheritance early. I've just done my work every day, respecting you, and, and, and you're throwing a party for him? The, the dad's got to speak to him as well. He's got to explain to him that, look, you know, your brother was dead but now he's alive your brother was lost but now he's found 
And nothing's ever been taken from you because of that. See, the people who see themselves as sinners and come back, they're the ones that are welcomed in. They're the ones that receive those loving arms. Those who do not see themselves as sinners look down upon sinners, not realizing they're in the same boat, and they miss out on that love. I believe that that father had the same love for that second son as he did for the one that was wasteful. But the son's attitude kept a distance between him and the father. And so today you have a choice to be the prodigal who comes back, who realizes I'm a sinner needing grace, or you can be like the older brother who is arrogant and I've just done everything and I'm righteous and I'm good and realize the father's got to speak to you and tell you you got a ways to go. All of this is to redirect us, to re-justify our lives or, or re, what's the word I'm looking for here? Recalibrate us back to Jesus. As the week goes on, as life goes on, you know, little things kind of ping, 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 little things just kind of attach themselves to us, meaning teachings and things that are said and things that are, uh, you know, that we process. You know, one of the reasons we believe lies are so detrimental is not because they, they, they themselves are destructive, but when somebody hears something, they can't unhear it. You know, if you've ever met somebody and somebody gossips about another person and then you can't ever see them outside of that light, you're like, they told me you were a, a liar or this or that and I should watch out for you and you can't ever not see them like that. It may have been an outright lie, but it's really hard to get over that. You're always suspicious and wondering and I don't know, keep them at arm's length type of thing. When they've done nothing, they've done nothing to justify that type of treatment. And so we go through our week, we go through our months, we go through our lives and people say things and we may not believe them, but they, might, they start to affect us. They kind of weigh on our conscience or our subconscious. And so that is one of the reasons why we've got to be in the word so that this word speaks to us the loudest and the clearest. There are times where we are going to be worried and scared. And if something worrisome or scary is happening, that's an appropriate response. But we need the word of God to speak to us to say, look, no matter how big the storm is, we are going to be okay. We need the word to remind us that, that Jesus has conquered this life. That should we perish from this current trial, we go to be with him. We win either way. That nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And we need that one, especially when we do fall to temptation, don't we? Not to justify our behavior, but to realize I can go back. I don't have to live far from him. Anything I've done, he knows about already. And he's willing and faithful to forgive. And I find with those people who do that, they're seeking holiness through Christ, not through their own actions. They're seeking the holiness of Christ. They begin to look at sin the way the Bible describes sin. And they fall to temptation less and less. They're not perfect. They have, it's not easy for them, but the victories start to outweigh the defeats. And maybe when they're in their 70s or their 80s or their 90s, you know, that, that's when the victories start to outnumber the defeats. But but man, they are willing to walk that path for the rest of their life because they realize the love that Jesus Christ the righteous has for them. The faithfulness time and time again to forgive. We as people, we aren't as forgiving, are we? The church from time to time can be not as forgiving. And we're gonna talk about next week about how the whole point of being told some of this is so that we might walk more like Jesus. Jesus.
we as Christians need to be more forgiving. Even, well, what if, what if they're not seeking forgiveness? Well, the command is to forgive. Whether somebody's seeking forgiveness or not is really secondary. You know, if you've got to kick somebody out of your life because they're stealing from you or, or they're hurting you, then so be it. Learn how to forgive them eventually. Keep them out of your life, but, but don't use that as an excuse to keep you from following a command of the Lord. Jesus is willing to forgive. He's even willing to forgive us when we know we're gonna do it again. Let's be honest with ourselves for a moment. If you've ever told the Lord, I ne- I'll never do that again, and then you did it again, he knew, he knew, and he forgave you anyways. Hear the great love that Jesus has for you and walk in that the reality of it, the truth of it, and allow it to shape and change your life. Let's stand, let's pray together. I want you to know that this is our endeavor, and if you're not there, we wanna pray with you. If you are struggling in your faith, we wanna pray for you. We wanna, we wanna come alongside you and be like, you know, arm in arm with you to overcome sin, to walk in the truth and the reality that is the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. So right now I'm gonna pray for you. If you've not given your life to Jesus, meaning you've not acknowledged him as the son of God, you've not repented of your sins and accepted the grace that God has given you through Jesus, if you have not called upon his name for forgiveness, then today's the day to give your life to him. Well, pastor, I've gone to church my whole life, but you can go to church your whole life without giving your life to Jesus. Well, I give so much in the offering. You could give until you are broke and you will still not be a Christian if you have not accepted Christ as your Lord and as your Savior in your life. Well, I grew up in the church. My parents went to church. I pray all the time. I've got 12 Bibles I never read. Well, those things don't make you Christian. A Christ follower. The reason why Christians were first called Christians they, they were called Christians, meaning little Christs. They were people who had given their life to Jesus and then committed themselves to being like Jesus. And so today, that's the call to you today. If you have not done that, then today I wanna pray with you. You can come to the altar, you can stay in your seat, you don't have to let anybody know, you can let everybody know. It's really up to you. But I wanna pray, let's pray. Jesus, there is nothing your word says that can separate us from you. If we are indeed born again, not just of our flesh, but of our spirit, then we will never be separated from you. There's nothing, there's no height, nor depth, no created thing that can separate us from the love that you have for us in your son, Christ Jesus. And so today, we don't come to celebrate our sin. We come to hear the challenge of the apostle John that our naivety towards our sin is detrimental. It's destroying us, Lord. That false teaching has infiltrated and it has taken over subtly and in small increments. And today, Lord, we want to have that gone. Allow us to see the true light of your word. May that light expose the darkness in our life, Lord. Lord, it's not our business to go after people or to go after groups or to go after, you know, Whatever, Lord, it's our, it's our job to preach the gospel, to know the gospel. Through that, Lord, we will see the crookedness 
in false gospels. Father, maybe we've, maybe we've relied on a false gospel and it's left us hurt and we've blamed you or we've blamed your church or we've blamed your people. But Lord, we're asking that you would knock down our pride and help us to realize that like this early church and like the church ever since, there are times where we allow wrong teaching, false doctrine to come in and to change what your gospel says. Today, Lord, we want to know the truth of your word. And your word says that we have an advocate before the Father who never stops making intercession for us. I thank you, Lord, because there are times where it seems like we cannot stop sinning. And we're not proud of that and we're not celebrating that, Lord, but it's the reality of who we are. And we thank you, Lord, that even when we make great professions and we make great promises, Lord, you forgive us knowing that we'll fall again. So Lord, we come seeking your forgiveness through your grace. I pray for those today, Lord, who have never given their lives to you or maybe have never even understood what that meant. Today, Lord, their eyes, their ears, their hearts are open to what you've done. And Father, I'm praying for where they're at and what they're doing and and, and where they are in life, Lord, that as they accept you as their Lord and Savior, that indeed they would be born again. Your word says that anybody who calls on the name of the Lord will not be put to shame. No one will say, Lord, see me that you will not see. Or Lord, hear me that you will not hear. I thank you, Lord, that the love that you have for us cannot be described by me. I pray, Lord, that your people now would experience it and feel it and walk in it. That it would change how they see the rest of the world and the rest of their life. For those who have fallen away, Lord, may they find your forgiveness as well. For us as a church, Lord, help us to be like you in in, in being more forgiving. Lord, exercising judgment when, when someone's walking in sin and celebrating sin, but forgiving and welcoming when they realize their folly. Lord, all of this is because you are so good. We We aren't so good, but you are. Thank you for your holiness, for your righteousness, for your perfection. Thank you for imparting it to us that we might be forgiven. May you receive all the glory in our lives. And may today be the beginning of our lives, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Church, I love you. We love you.